Hey, everybody, and welcome to this week's episode of the Weird Tales Podcast. My name is Tycho Alhambra. Thank you for listening. If this is your first episode, welcome. I'm happy to have you here regardless of your race, sexual orientation, or gender identity. The Weird Tales Podcast believes that trans rights are human rights, that abortion is health care, and that black lives matter, and we stand in solidarity with you all. Transcripts of the show, as well as links to institutions fighting for reproductive justice, can all be found in the show notes. Happy New Year! I hope you've had a wonderful new year, and I hope this year is full of nothing but good news and celebrations for you all the year through. As for me, this is going to be the biggest year of the show yet, and that all begins with The String of Pearls, or The Barber of Fleet Street, by James Malcolm Reimer. You can go over to my YouTube page right now and listen to the first chapter. Just search for The Weird Tales Podcast and you'll find it. Following chapters will go up every other day, so throw a subscription over there and I hope you enjoy it. Bit of a content warning for the story, the first chapter is surprisingly violent. A child, described as weak-minded, is quite brutally abused, so just be aware that that happens near the end. Anyway, I hope you enjoy it. It will be continuing throughout the year, and I'm pleased and proud to present it to you. Otherwise, not a lot else going on, so let's get on with this week's story. The Great God Pan by Arthur Mackin 1. The Experiment I'm glad you came, Clark. Very glad indeed. I was not sure you could spare the time. I was able to make arrangements for a few days. Things are not very lively just now, but have you no misgivings, Raymond? Is it absolutely safe? The two men were slowly pacing the terrace in front of Dr. Raymond's house. The sun still hung above the western mountain line, but it shone with a dull red glow that cast no shadows, and all the air was quiet. A sweet breath came from the great wood on the hillside above, and with it, at intervals, the soft murmuring call of the wild doves. Below, in the long, lovely valley, the river wound in and out between the lonely hills, and, as the sun hovered and vanished into the west, a faint mist, pure white, began to rise from the hills. Dr. Raymond turned sharply to his friend. Safe? Of course it is safe. In itself, the operation is a perfectly simple one. Any surgeon can do it. And there is no danger at any other stage. None. Absolutely no physical danger whatsoever. I give you my word. You are always timid, Clark, always, but you know my history. I have devoted myself to transcendental medicine for the last twenty years. I have heard myself called quack and charlatan and impostor, but all the while I knew I was on the right path. Five years ago I reached the goal, and since then every day has been a preparation for what we shall do tonight. I should like to believe it is all true. Clark knit his brows and looked doubtfully at Dr. Raymond. Are you perfectly sure, Raymond, that your theory is not a phantasmagoria? A splendid vision, certainly, but a mere vision, after all. Dr. Raymond stopped in his walk and turned sharply. He was a middle-aged man, gaunt and thin, of a pale yellow complexion, but as he answered Clark and faced him, there was a flush on his cheek. Look about you, Clark. You see the mountain and hill following after hill, as wave on wave. You see the woods and orchard, the fields of ripe corn and the meadows reaching to the reed beds by the river. You see me standing here beside you and hear my voice, but I tell you that all these things, yes, from the star that has just shone out in the sky to the solid ground beneath our feet, I say that all these are but dreams and shadows, the shadows that hide the real world from our eyes. There is a real world, but it is beyond this glamour and this vision, beyond these chases in auras, dreams in a career, beyond them all as beyond a veil. I do not know whether any human being has ever lifted that veil, 
but I do know, Clark, that you and I shall see it lifted this very night from before another's eyes. You may think this all strange nonsense. It may be strange, but it is true, and the ancients knew what lifting the veil means. They call it seeing the god Pan. Clark shivered. The white mist gathering over the river was chilly. It is wonderful indeed, he said. We are standing on the brink of a strange world, Raymond, if what you say is true. I suppose the knife is absolutely necessary. Yes, a slight lesion in the grey matter, that is all. A trifling rearrangement of certain cells, a microscopical alteration that would escape the attention of ninety-nine brain specialists out of a hundred. I don't want to bother you with shop, Clark. I might give you a mass of technical detail which would sound very imposing and would leave you as enlightened as you are now. But I suppose you have read, casually, in an out-of-the-way corner of your paper, that immense strides have been made recently in the physiology of the brain. I saw a paragraph the other day about Digby's theory and Brown Faber's discoveries. Theories and discoveries. Where they are standing now, I stood fifteen years ago, and I need not tell you that I have not been standing still for the last fifteen years. It will be enough if I say that five years ago I made the discovery that I alluded to when I said that ten years ago I reached the goal. After years of labor, after years of toiling and groping in the dark, after days and nights of disappointments and sometimes of despair, in which I used now and then to tremble and grow cold with the thought that perhaps there were others seeking for what I sought, at last, after so long, a pang of sudden joy thrilled my soul, and I knew the long journey was at an end. By what seemed then, and still seems a chance, the suggestion of a moment's idle thought followed up upon familiar lines and paths that I had tracked a hundred times already, the great truth burst upon me, and I saw mapped out in lines of sight a whole world, a sphere unknown, continents and islands and great oceans in which no ship has sailed, to my belief, since a man first lifted up his eyes and beheld the sun and the stars of heaven and the quiet earth beneath. You will think this all high-flown language, Clark, but it is hard to be literal— and yet, I do not know whether what I am hinting at cannot be set forth in plain and lonely terms. For instance, this world of ours is pretty well girded now with the telegraph wires and cables. Thought, with something less than the speed of thought, flashes from sunrise to sunset, from north to south, across the floods and the desert places. Suppose that an electrician of today were suddenly to perceive that he and his friends have merely been playing with pebbles and mistaking them for the foundations of the world— Suppose that such a man saw uttermost space lie open before the current, and words of men flash forth to the sun and beyond the sun into the systems beyond, and the voice of articulate-speaking men echo in the waste void that bounds our thought. As analogies go, that is a pretty good analogy of what I have done. You can understand now a little of what I felt as I stood here one evening. It was a summer evening, and the valley looked much as it does now. I stood here and saw before me the unutterable, the unthinkable gulf that yawns profound between two worlds, the world of matter and the world of spirit. I saw the great empty deep stretch dim before me, and in that instant a bridge of light leapt from the earth to the unknown shore, and the abyss was spanned. You may look in Brown Faber's book, if you like, and you will find that to the present day men of science are unable to account for the presence or to specify the functions of a certain group of nerve cells in the brain. That group is, as it were, land to let, a mere waste place for fanciful theories. I am not in the position of Brown Faber and the specialists. I am perfectly instructed as to the possible functions of those nerve centers in the scheme of things. With a touch, I can bring them into play. With a touch, I say, I can set free the current. With a touch, I can complete the communication between this world of sense and... We shall be able to finish the sentence later on. Yes, the knife is necessary. 
but think what that knife will effect. It will level utterly the solid wall of sense, and probably for the first time since man was made, a spirit will gaze on a spirit world. Clark, Mary will see the god Pan. But you remember what you wrote to me. I thought it would be requisite that she— He whispered the rest into the doctor's ear. Not at all, not at all. That is nonsense, I assure you. Indeed, it is better as it is. I am quite certain of that. Consider the matter well, Raymond. It's a great responsibility. Something might go wrong. You would be a miserable man for the rest of your days. No, I think not, even if the worst happened. As you know, I rescued Mary from the gutter and from almost certain starvation when she was a child. I think her life is mine to use as I see fit. Come, it's getting late. We had better go in. Dr. Raymond led the way into the house, through the hall, and down a long, dark passage. He took a key from his pocket and opened a heavy door and motioned Clark into his laboratory. It had once been a billiard room and was lighted by a glass dome in the center of the ceiling, whence there still shone a sad gray light on the figure of the doctor as he lit a lamp with a heavy shade and placed it on a table in the middle of the room. Clark looked about him. Scarcely a foot of wall remained bare. There were shelves all around laden with bottles and files of all shapes and colors, and at one end stood a little Chippendale bookcase. Raymond pointed to this. You see that parchment, Oswald Crollius? He was one of the first to show me the way, though I don't think he ever found it himself. That is a strange saying of his. In every grain of wheat there lies hidden the soul of a star. There was not much furniture in the laboratory. The table in the center, a stone slab with a drain in one corner, the two armchairs on which Raymond and Clark were sitting. That was all, except an odd-looking chair at the furthest end of the room. Clark looked at it and raised his eyebrows. Yes, that is the chair, said Raymond. We may as well place it in position. He got up and wheeled the chair to the light, and began raising and lowering it, letting down the seat, setting the back at various angles, and adjusting the footrest. It looked comfortable enough, and Clark passed his hand over the soft green velvet as the doctor manipulated the levers. Now, Clark, make yourself quite comfortable. I have a couple hours' work before me. I was obliged to leave certain matters to the last. Raymond went to the stone slab, and Clark watched him drearily as he bent over a row of files and lit the flame under the crucible. The doctor had a small hand lamp shaded as the larger one on a ledge above his apparatus, and Clark, who sat in the shadows, looked down at the great shadowy room, wondering at the bizarre effects of brilliant light and undefined darkness contrasting with one another. Soon he became conscious of an odd odor, at first the merest suggestion of odor in the room, and as it grew more decided, he felt surprised that he was not reminded of the chemist shop or the surgery. Clark found himself idly endeavoring to analyze the sensation, and half-conscious, he began to think of a day, fifteen years ago, that he had spent roaming through the woods and meadows near his own home. It was a burning day at the beginning of August. The heat had dimmed the outlines of all things and all distances with a faint mist, and people who observed the thermometer spoke of an abnormal register, of a temperature that was almost tropical. Strangely, that wonderful hot day of the fifties rose up again in Clark's imagination. The sense of dazzling, all-pervading sunlight seemed to blot out the shadows and the lights of the laboratory, and he felt again the heated air beating in gusts about his face, saw the shimmer rising from the turf, and heard the myriad murmur of the summer. I hope the smell doesn't annoy you, Clark. There's nothing unwholesome about it. It may make you a bit sleepy, that's all. 
Clark heard the words quite distinctly and knew that Raymond was speaking to him, but for the life of him he could not rouse himself from his lethargy. He could only think of the lonely walk he had taken fifteen years ago. It was his last look at the fields and woods he had known since he was a child, and now it all stood out in brilliant light as a picture before him. Above all, there came to his nostrils the scent of summer, the smell of flowers mingled in the odor of the woods, of cool, shaded places deep in the green depths drawn forth by the sun's heat, and the scent of the good earth, lying, as it were, with arms stretched forth and smiling lips overpowered all. His fancies made him wander as he had wandered long ago from the fields into the wood, tracking a little path between the shining undergrowth of beech trees and the trickle of water dropping from the limestone rock sounded as a clear melody in the dream. Thoughts began to go astray and to mingle with other thoughts. The beech alley was transformed to a path between ilex trees, and here and there a vine climbed from bough to bough and sent up waving tendrils and drooped with purple grapes, and the sparse gray-green leaves of a wild olive tree stood out against the dark shadows of the ilex. Clark, in the deep folds of dream, was conscious that the path from his father's house had led him into an undiscovered country, and he was wondering at the strangeness of it all, when suddenly, in place of the hum and murmur of the summer, an infinite silence seemed to fall on all things, and the wood was hushed, and for a moment in time he stood face to face there with a presence that was neither man nor beast, neither the living nor the dead, but all things mingled, the form of all things but devoid of all form. And in that moment the sacrament of body and soul was dissolved, and a voice seemed to cry, Let us go hence, and then the darkness of darkness beyond the stars, the darkness of everlasting. When Clark woke up with a start, he saw Raymond pouring a few drops of some oily fluid into a green phial, which he stoppered tightly. "'You've been dozing,' he said. "'The journey must have tired you out. It is done now. I am going to fetch Mary. I shall be back in ten minutes.' Clark lay back in his chair and wondered. It seemed as if he had but passed from one dream into another— he half expected to see the walls of the laboratory melt and disappear, and to awake in London, shuddering at his own sleeping fancies. But at last the door opened and the doctor returned, and behind him came a girl of about seventeen dressed all in white. She was so beautiful that Clark did not wonder at what the doctor had written to him. She was blushing now over face and neck and arms, but Raymond seemed unmoved. "'Mary,' he said, "'the time has come. You are quite free.' Are you willing to trust yourself to me entirely? Yes, dear. Do you hear that, Clark? You are my witness. Here is the chair, Mary. It is quite easy. Just sit in it and lean back. Are you ready? Yes, dear. Quite ready. Give me a kiss before you begin. The doctor stopped and kissed her mouth kindly enough. Now, shut your eyes, he said. The girl closed her eyelids as if she were tired and longed for sleep, and Raymond placed the green file to her nostrils. Her face grew white, whiter than her dress. She struggled faintly, and then, with the feeling of submission strong within her, crossed her arms upon her breast as a little child about to say her prayers. The bright light of the lamp fell full upon her, and Clark watched changes fleeting over her face as the changes of the hills when the summer clouds float across the sun. And then she lay all white and still, and the doctor turned up one of her eyelids. She was quite unconscious. Raymond pressed hard on one of the levers, and the chair instantly sank back. 
Clark saw him cutting away a circle like a tonsure from her hair, and the lamp was moved nearer. Raymond took a small, glittering instrument from a little case, and Clark turned away shudderingly. When he looked again, the doctor was binding up the wound he had made. She will wake in five minutes. Raymond was still perfectly cool. There's nothing more to be done. We can only wait. The minutes passed slowly. They could hear a slow, heavy ticking. There was an old clock in the passage. Clark felt sick and faint. His knees shook beneath him. He could hardly stand. Suddenly, as they watched, they heard a long-drawn sigh, and suddenly did the color that had vanished return to the girl's cheeks, and suddenly her eyes opened. Clark quailed before them. They shone with an awful light looking far away, and a great wonder fell upon her face, and her hands stretched out as if to touch what was invisible. But in an instant the wonder faded and gave place to the most awful terror. The muscles of her face were hideously convulsed. She shook from head to foot. The soul seemed struggling and shuddering within the house of flesh. It was a horrible sight, and Clark rushed forward as she fell, shrieking to the floor. Three days later, Raymond took Clark to Mary's bedside. She was lying wide awake, rolling her head from side to side and grinning vacantly. "'Yes,' said the doctor, still quite cool. "'It is a great pity. She is a hopeless idiot. However, it could not be helped, and after all, she has seen the great god Pan.'" 2. Mr. Clark's Memoirs Mr. Clark, the gentleman chosen by Dr. Raymond to witness the strange experiment of the god Pan, was a person in whose character caution and curiosity were oddly mingled. In his sober moments he thought of the unusual and eccentric with undisguised aversion, and yet deep in his heart there was a wide-eyed inquisitiveness with respect to all the more recondite and esoteric elements in the nature of men. The latter tendency had prevailed when he accepted Raymond's invitation, for though his considered judgment had always repudiated the doctor's theories as the wildest nonsense, yet he secretly hugged a belief in fantasy and would have rejoiced to see that belief confirmed. The horrors that he witnessed in the dreary laboratory were, to a certain extent, salutary. He was conscious of being involved in an affair not altogether reputable, and for many years afterwards he clung bravely to the commonplace and rejected all occasions of occult investigation. Indeed, on some homeopathic principle— he for some time attended the seances of distinguished mediums, hoping that the clumsy tricks of these gentlemen would make him altogether disgusted with mysticism of every kind, but the remedy, though caustic, was not efficacious. Clark knew that he still pined for the unseen, and little by little the old passion began to reassert itself as the face of Mary, shuddering and convulsed with an unknown terror, faded slowly from his memory. Occupied all day in pursuits both serious and lucrative, the temptation to relax in the evening was too great, especially in the winter months, when the fire cast a warm glow over his snug bachelor apartment and a bottle of some choice claret stood ready by his elbow. His dinner digested, he would make a brief pretense of reading the evening paper, but the mere catalogue of news soon palled upon him, and Clark would find himself casting glances of warm desire in the direction of an old Japanese bureau which stood at a pleasant distance from the hearth. Like a boy before a jam closet, for a few minutes he would hover indecisive, but lust always prevailed, and Clark ended by drawing up his chair, lighting a candle, and sitting down before the bureau. Its pigeonholes and drawers teemed with documents on the most morbid subjects, 
and in the well reposed a large manuscript volume in which he had painfully entered the gems of his collection. Clark had a fine contempt for published literature. The most ghostly story ceased to interest him if it happened to be printed. His sole pleasure was in the reading, compiling, and rearranging what he called his Memoirs to Prove the Existence of the Devil, and engaged in this pursuit, the evening seemed to fly, and the night appeared too short. On one particular evening, an ugly December night, black with fog and raw with frost, Clark hurried over his dinner and scarcely deigned to observe his customary ritual of taking up the paper and laying it down again. He paced two or three times up and down the room and opened the bureau, stood still a moment and sat down. He leant back, absorbed in one of those dreams to which he was subject, and at length drew out his book and opened it at the last entry. There were three or four pages densely covered with Clark's round-set penmanship, and at the beginning he had written in a somewhat larger hand, "'Singular narrative told me by my friend Dr. Phillips. He assures me that all the facts related therein are strictly and wholly true, but refuses to give either the surnames of the persons concerned or the place where these extraordinary events occurred.' Mr. Clark began to read over the account for the tenth time, glancing now and then at the pencil notes he had made when it was told him by his friend. It was one of his humors to pride himself on a certain literary ability. He thought well of his style, and took pains in arranging the circumstances in dramatic order. He read the following story. The persons concerned in this statement are Helen V., who, if she is still alive, must now be a woman of twenty-three, Rachel M., since deceased, who was a year younger than the above, and Trevor W., an imbecile, aged 18. These persons were, at the period of the story, inhabitants of a village on the borders of Wales, a place of some importance in the time of the Roman occupation, but now a scattered hamlet of not more than 500 souls. It is situated on rising ground about six miles from the sea, and is sheltered by a large and picturesque forest. Some eleven years ago, Helen V. came to the village under rather peculiar circumstances. It is understood that she, being an orphan, was adopted in her infancy by a distant relative who brought her up in his own house until she was twelve years old. Thinking, however, that it would be better for the child to have playmates of her own age, he advertised in several local papers for a good home in a comfortable farmhouse for a girl of twelve, and this advertisement was answered by Mr. R., a well-to-do farmer in the above-mentioned village. His references proving satisfactory, the gentleman sent his adopted daughter to Mr. R. with a letter in which he stipulated that the girl should have a room to herself and stated that her guardians need be at no trouble in the matter of education as she was already sufficiently educated for the position in life which she would occupy. In fact, Mr. R. was given to understand that the girl be allowed to find her own occupations and to spend her time almost as she liked. Mr. R. duly met her at the nearest station, a town seven miles away from his house, and seems to have remarked nothing extraordinary about the child, except that she was reticent as to her former life and her adopted father. She was, however, of a very different type from the inhabitants of the village. Her skin was a pale, clear olive, and her features were strongly marked and of a somewhat foreign character. She appears to have settled down easily enough into farmhouse life, and became a favorite with the children who sometimes went with her on rambles in the forest, for this was her amusement. Mr. R. states that he has known her to go out by herself directly after their early breakfast and not return till after dusk, and that, feeling uneasy at a young girl being out alone for so many hours, he communicated with her adopted father, who replied in a brief note that Helen must do as she chose. 
In the winter, when the forest paths are impassable, she spent most of her time in her bedroom, where she slept alone, according to the instructions of her relatives. It was on one of these expeditions to the forest that the first of the singular incidents with which this girl is connected occurred, the date being about a year after her arrival at the village. The preceding winter had been remarkably severe, the snow drifting to a great depth and the frost continuing for an unexampled period, and the summer following was as noteworthy for its extreme heat. On one of the very hottest days in this summer, Helen V. left the farmhouse for one of her long rambles in the forest, taking with her, as usual, some bread and meat for lunch. She was seen by some men in the fields making for the old Roman road, a green causeway which traverses the highest part of the wood, and they were astonished to observe that the girl had taken off her hat, though the heat of the sun was already tropical. As it happened, a laborer, Joseph W. by name, was working in the forest near the Roman road, and at twelve o'clock his little son Trevor brought the man his dinner of bread and cheese. After the meal, the boy, who was about seven years old at the time, left his father at work and, as he said, went to look for flowers in the wood, and the man, who could hear him shouting with delight at his discoveries, felt no uneasiness. Suddenly, however, he was horrified at hearing the most dreadful screams, evidently the result of great terror, proceeding from the direction in which his son had gone, and he hastily threw down his tools and ran to see what had happened. Tracing his path by the sound, he met the little boy, who was running headlong and was evidently terribly frightened, and on questioning him, the man elicited that, after picking a posy of flowers, he felt tired and lay down on the grass and fell asleep. He was suddenly awakened, as he stated, by a peculiar noise, a sort of singing, he called it, and on peeping through the branches, he saw Helen V. playing on the grass with a strange naked man, who he seemed unable to describe more fully. He said he felt dreadfully frightened and ran away crying for his father. Joseph W. proceeded in the direction indicated by his son and found Helen V. sitting on the grass in the middle of a glade or open space left by charcoal burners. He angrily charged her with frightening his little boy, but she entirely denied the accusation and laughed at the child's story of a strange man to which he himself did not attach much credence. Joseph W. came to the conclusion that the boy had woke up with a sudden fright, as children sometimes do, but Trevor persisted in his story and continued in such evident distress that at last his father took him home, hoping that his mother would be able to soothe him. For many weeks, however, the boy gave his parents much anxiety. He became nervous and strange in his manner, refusing to leave the cottage by himself and constantly alarming the household by waking in the night with cries of, "'The man in the wood! Father! Father!' In course of time, however, the impression seemed to have worn off, and about three months later he accompanied his father to the home of a gentleman in the neighborhood for whom Joseph W. occasionally did work. The man was shown into the study, and the little boy was left sitting in the hall, and a few minutes later, while the gentleman was giving W. his instructions, they were both horrified by a piercing shriek and the sound of a fall, and rushing out they found the child lying senseless on the floor, his face contorted with terror. The doctor was immediately summoned, and after some examination he pronounced the child to be suffering from a kind of fit, apparently produced by a sudden shock. The boy was taken to one of the bedrooms, and after some time recovered consciousness, but only to pass into a condition described by the medical man as one of violent hysteria. The doctor exhibited a strong sedative, and in the course of two hours pronounced him fit to walk home, but in passing through the hall the paroxysms of fright returned, and with additional violence. 
The father perceived that the child was pointing at some object and heard the old cry, The man in the wood! And looking in the direction indicated, saw a stone head of grotesque appearance which had been built into the wall above one of the doors. It seems the owner of the house had recently made alterations in his premises, and on digging the foundations for some offices, the man had found a curious head, evidently of the Roman period, which had been placed in the manner described. The head is pronounced by the most experienced archaeologists of the district to be that of a fawn or satyr. Footnote, Dr. Phillips tells me that he has seen the head in question and assures me that he has never received such a vivid presentment of intense evil. From whatever cause arising, this second shock seemed too severe for the boy Trevor, and at the present date he suffers from a weakness of intellect which gives but little promise of amending. The matter caused a good deal of sensation at the time, and the girl, Helen, was closely questioned by Mr. R., but to no purpose, she steadfastly denying that she had frightened or in any way molested Trevor. The second event with which this girl's name is connected took place about six years ago and is of a still more extraordinary character. At the beginning of the summer of 1882, Helen contracted a friendship of a peculiarly intimate character with Rachel M., the daughter of a prosperous farmer in the neighborhood. This girl, who was a year younger than Helen, was considered by most people to be the prettier of the two, though Helen's features had to a great extent softened as she became older. The two girls, who were together on every available opportunity, presented a singular contrast, the one with her clear olive skin and almost Italian appearance, and the other of the proverbial red and white of our rural districts. It must be stated that the payments made to Mr. R. for the maintenance of Helen were known in the village for their excessive liberality, and the impression was general that she would one day inherit a large sum of money from her relative. The parents of Rachel were therefore not averse from their daughter's friendship with the girl, and even encouraged the intimacy, though they now bitterly regret having done so. Helen still retained her extraordinary fondness for the forest, and on several occasions Rachel accompanied her, the two friends setting out early in the morning and remaining in the wood until dusk. Once or twice after these excursions, Mrs. M. thought her daughter's manner rather peculiar. She seemed languid and dreamy, and as it had been expressed, different from herself, but these peculiarities seemed to have been thought too trifling for remark. One evening, however, after Rachel had come home, her mother heard a noise which sounded like suppressed weeping in the girl's room, and on going in found her lying, half undressed upon the bed, evidently in the greatest distress. As soon as she saw her mother, she exclaimed, "'Ah, oh, mother, mother, why did you let me go to the forest with Helen?' Mrs. M. was astonished at so strange a question, and proceeded to make inquiries. Rachel told her a wild story. She said, "'Clark closed the book with a snap and turned his chair towards the fire. "'When his friend sat one evening in that very chair and told his story, "'Clark had interrupted him at a point a little subsequent to this, "'had cut short his words in a paroxysm of horror. "'My God!' he had exclaimed. "'Think, think what you are saying. "'It is too incredible, too monstrous. "'Such things can never be in this quiet world "'where men and women live and die and struggle and conquer "'or maybe fail and fall down under sorrow "'and grieve and suffer strange fortunes for many a year. "'But not this, Phillips, not such things as this.' There must be some explanation, some way out of the terror. Why, man, if such a case were possible, our earth would be a nightmare. But Phillips had told his story to the end, concluding, Her flight remains a mystery to this day. 
she vanished in broad sunlight. They saw her walking in a meadow, and a few minutes later, she was not there. Clark tried to conceive the thing again as he sat by the fire, and again his mind shuddered and shrank back, appalled before the sight of such awful, unspeakable elements enthroned, as it were, and triumphant in human flesh. Before him stretched the long, dim vista of the green causeway in the forest, as his friend had described it. He saw the swaying leaves and the quivering shadows on the grass. He saw the sunlight and the flowers, and far away, far in the long distance, the two figures moved toward him. One was Rachel, but the other? Clark had tried his best to disbelieve it all, but at the end of the account, as he had written in his book, he had placed the inscription, Et diabolis incarnatus est, et homo factus est. And the devil was incarnate, and he became a man. And that is the end of the first two chapters. If you enjoy the show and want to help support it, please feel free to pick up the Colin Malatrap Museum of Curious Oddities and Strange Antiquities. Link in the show notes. It's a really good collection of weird fiction, and I'm really proud of it. You can also support me on Patreon, patreon.com slash Podcast. Thanks to Melissa Boudreau, Amber Vale, and Steve Meyer for your support. Please go and get vaccinated for anything you're available to get or something you may be eligible for. If you see a bigot out on the street doing a bigotry, feel free to mock them until they cry. And as always, remember that the most important step a person can take is always the next one. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you next week.